0: As we, as we open up this morning, I'd like to talk about the idea of failure uh, and uh, to talk about some, some maybe epic fails throughout our recent history. So, uh, so, you know, humanity has a remarkable ability to let failure be a very defining factor for us. And so, uh, so there are actually people who have that thing, that they will never live down. And maybe you've had that thing, that you will never live down, Um, but there are certain people who, when you say their name, uh, there are certain organizations, when you say their name, the only thing that you can think of is the failure that they are known for. And so, uh, so we're gonna kinda go through some, uh, some failures in recent history today. So I have a few pictures up here to share with you this morning. Right here we have Bernie Madoff, uh, and we will only ever always remember Bernie Madoff for his Ponzi scheme and uh, for just uh, kind of exploiting a bunch of people. Uh, and he will literally never live down uh, that failure because uh, he, has a, he had a 150 year prison sentence. Like literally he cannot live down that failure. And so that's, that's Bernie Madoff. Uh, the next one we have Tanya Harding. We will always know Tanya for exactly what it was that Tanya arranged or, uh, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so this, uh, this situation where she, you know, gets this girl kneecapped and then, uh, and then they go to the Olympics and then uh, the girl who got kneecapped gets the, the silver medal and Tanya gets eighth place. So, uh, okay, so another name you may know uh, right here, Jonah. Jonah, gosh, we give Jonah a bad rap, don't we? He is only, he's really only ever known for his failure. Jonah ran away from God. That's what he's known for. And then God had to send a fish to swallow him so that he could throw him up on the shore of the place that he was supposed to go. And that's how we know Jonah. We identify Jonah with his failure. Here's another uh, person we identify. Oh, Enron, this is good, Enron. It just kind of sticks in our minds. Um, Now, uh, if you don't know what Enron is, then you need to be like about five or 10 years older than you are right now. Uh, but uh but Enron you know insider trading I didn't even I wouldn't know what insider trading was without Enron and so that's uh that's super helpful another name you may know Richard Nixon you know I don't know anything that Richard Nixon did in his presidency besides lie like that's that's just what I grew up with right like the only thing I know is the Watergate scandal. That's it. He may have done other things. They may have even been good things, but unfortunately, just the way this has worked out in our culture, uh, Richard Nixon, he is just, he is a name synonymous with his failure, and so, okay, so that's some of that. Here's some names that you may not know, but faces that you won't be able to forget, so this guy and his uh, failure, he will never be able to live that down I can promise you that (laughs) he will never be able to live that down I don't even know how he's going to get out of that they might have to call the fire department cut those bars apart I just don't know I don't know that's kind of scary to me uh here here's another failure that uh uh, you may not know these people we have a ah poor guy man that's just too bad uh yeah okay and then here's one more here's one more this guy That guy, that hockey team he's on, he's never going to live that down. They are always going to be giving him a hard time about that. So so you know what? Failure, failure can easily become a defining factor for us. So uh, that doesn't have to be our story. In fact, what we're talking about today is the fact that the reality that failure does not have to be our defining factor. In fact, when God makes our stories about him, because that's part of what he does when he draws us in Jesus, he says, you know what? Your story is not about you anymore. It is about me. Our stories, the stories that God tells through our lives, they become about him. And when God makes our stories about him, failure no longer has to define us. He actually has a remarkable ability to bring about hope in our story when we seem to make a mess of things. And so so if your story is about God and not you, there is hope this morning. You know what? Failure doesn't define you. God does. Failure does not define you. God knows. And as I say that, you can probably think of some pretty significant failures, whether it's in your recent life, whether it's like just some major failures in in all of your life, that you are really tempted, your mind keeps going back to them, and you are tempted to to let that define you, to let that define your relationship with God. And I want to tell you this morning, failure doesn't define you, especially if God has made your story about him, failure doesn't define you. God does. So we're going to look a, at a story about a massive failure. A guy who had massive potential and threw it all away. Uh, had, a, had a pretty massive failure. So, so we're in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. So last, the last few weeks, we've been looking at God's people. God's people are in the land of Egypt. They are being oppressed. They uh, have to work very, very hard, uh, harder than they've ever had to work in their life. They, uh, they, uh, the Pharaoh has come and, and has said, uh, you know, we're scared of them. We're worried about what they might do to our land. They might take my power away. And so we're going to make them work. We're going to oppress them. And not only that, but then last week, we looked at just how dark the situation got for God. God's people where uh, they actually were, uh, genocide was committed against them. Mass genocide was commanded against God's people and they're in the middle of this place and they are a people who God had promised to bless. And that's why we've been calling this series Forgotten is because God's people in the midst of this situation would be really, really tempted to feel forgotten because they had God's promise of blessing but they weren't seeing it actively carried out. They couldn't quite see what God was up to. And so even when they felt forgotten last week, we we saw the story of these women, these seemingly powerless women, who in the midst of all of it still had a fear of God. And in their fear of God, they uh, held to obedience towards God. God used their fear of him in the midst of feeling forgotten to actually bring about his purposes, and that, that brought about the birth of, of the main character of our story today, Moses. We look at Moses, and we have his story today, and, and so that's how God's purposes are starting to get advanced, and so now our full attention is drawn to Moses. So verse 11 says this, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So Moses, uh, he was found by the daughter of Pharaoh. Uh, He sent off, like, uh, nursed by his Hebrew mother, but then eventually had to be given back to uh, the daughter of Pharaoh and is now being raised in the house of Pharaoh. Now, this has a whole lot of implications. Moses would have had access to the best education that there was to offer. He would have uh, actually been trained into Hebrew high-class society. He would have been built up by these things. And so being raised as an Egyptian, and not just any Egyptian, because there are, uh, Egypt, uh, Egypt is a very classist society, So you have uh, the highest class, um, which would be like the ruling class, those with money and influence and power and and the the nobles. And and Moses is among those people. But then you have kind of like the working class, right? And and the people at the highest class, they're trained to view people in the working class like they're kind of subhuman. Now think, think about that and then think about slaves. So if people in the working class who are Egyptians are like subhuman, then what would slaves be? Slaves would become like animals. In fact, you can look back at Egyptian texts and you can actually see them refer to slaves as like animals or like donkeys. You know, they're just to be treated like that. And this is the system that raises Moses. This is what builds him up. This is what turns him into the person that he becomes. And so he had all of this prejudice inside of him. He had all of this sort of, uh, this sort of racist, classist society that formed him but he knows something as he's being raised in all of this. He is aware of the fact that he is a Hebrew. So being aware of the fact that he is a Hebrew while he's watching all of these people be oppressed in the midst of this situation, it it starts to create inside of him a bit of an identity conflict. Because he's being raised, as an Egyptian, he's being raised to think these things, but he knows his people. And there's nobody like Moses in all of Egypt's high-class society. He's the only one. He knows he has a people, though, who the entirety of are being oppressed, who he gets a message every single day as he's being raised that those people are not even human. This is what he's told. And so he goes out and he looks on his people. He's moved in his spirit as he hears these words about the kind of people that that he came from. There's something wrong in his soul. He says this is not right, and his identity conflict actually leads him to look on his people. Now when it says looked on, that is a phrase throughout the Old Testament that you can look at and consider, and what it means is, is it's actually to view with compassion. So when we hear stories about God looking on his people, the concept that we get is God is observing them with compassion. So God's observing them with compassion and that's what's happening with Moses here. Something is stirring in his soul. And so then uh, it says here in verse 11, it goes on and it says, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So I want you to know when he observes this, when he observes this Egyptian who is beating one of his people, This is not uncommon. This should not be surprising to us. This would have been a common occurrence. This was how Egypt got its work done, is that they would beat these slaves into submission, kind of doing what they needed to do. But Moses is just now being exposed to it for the first time. I want you to imagine that Moses has actually been uh, held off from observing reality as it stands, he doesn't see things as they are. So, this would have been kind of Moses' first exposure to how the Egyptian world is actually functioning. And it does something to him. It actually uh, really, really frustrates him. And so, this hits a good chord in, inside of Moses uh, because Moses recognizes that there is an injustice being done. His people are being oppressed. That is not. Okay, and so something actually starts to stir up inside of him. He actually, he actually gets really courageous, and that's a good thing. And this is, this is honestly what he is about to do, what he makes up his mind to do. It, it, it takes guts, because he could have made the decision to say, you know what, I'm going to stay with Egypt. I'm gonna stay in uh, this place where maybe I can influence the, the Egyptian ruling class to kind of make some space for my people. He could have decided that, but instead he actually decides to make a stand. And it takes guts, it takes strength. It takes courage in, for him to do this. It takes compassion. He actually has to have a love for people resident inside of him that says this is wrong. It takes a bit of fortitude. And it shows that Moses actually has a lot of potential inside of him. And so I want you to know, like Moses, in this moment, Moses is making a decision. Moses is making a decision to step away from his Egyptian heritage that he was raised with and actually to step in and associate with the Hebrew people. That's what's happening in his head at the moment. And we know this because Scripture actually tells us, Scripture commends Moses for where he's at at this point this decision that he's making, Hebrews 11, 24 and 25 says this. It says, by faith, when he was grown up, and verse 11 says, he had grown up when he had grown up. So by faith, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You know, so Egypt had so many things to offer, so many good things that Moses could have taken advantage of, but uh, but Moses chose in this moment to associate and identify with his people over against the people of Egypt. So, he's identifying with the animals over against the elites. So this not only shows great compassion in him, shows great courage, but it also shows great humility inside of Moses. Okay? At the same time, you cannot miss inside of Moses the strong root of pride that exists. Because what he does is he takes things into his own hands. You know, Moses, and we're going to see this actually throughout the story of the Exodus, Moses has a control problem. In fact, it keeps coming back to bite him. This is Moses' constant downfall. He is driven by the impulse to control, to take control of things when they are not his to take control of. So if you are like me and you have control problems, I'd invite you to buckle in this morning because you are going to get confronted with your own heart. As I've been working through this text, um, I have indeed, the, the Lord has just shown me like this is what is inside of you as you struggle to take control of things, as you desire to kind of have your own way in things, this is what's inside of you. And so Moses, his control problem, it leads him to do something really, really dumb, uh, something that he knows is wrong. It leads him actually to put himself in the place of God and to make a decision that is only God's to make. And so verse 12 says this, he looked this way and that. So if you wonder, Was it okay for Moses to kill the Egyptian? Moses knew it wasn't okay. He was looking around. He was making sure that nobody was watching. He was doing it very secretively. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses was led to kill the Egyptian. That's what happened. He uh, made the decision to kill the Egyptian. So he took what was really good inside of him, all of this courage, all of this desire to associate with his people, and he used it to commit murder. So Moses's intention, I want you to understand what Moses is wanting to do right now. He is attempting to start a revolution. He is, he is actually taking a stand in Egypt. He is trying to redo the order of things in Egypt. He decides, this is my time to deliver my people. That's actually what Moses is deciding to do. God know, or Moses knows that God has given the Israelites a promise, and he is very aware of this promise that God has given to them, that they are going to be delivered out of Egypt. And right here, Moses is becoming the deliverer. He is attempting to set himself up, but it kind of falls to pieces. And the reason it falls to pieces is because Moses has a heart idol of control. So before we go further, I want to look at this heart idol of control. This is how the progression of an idol works inside of Moses. It starts with pride. So pride says, you know what? God might have a plan, uh, but I think I know better than God does, and I will kind of take things into my own hands. I think I have a better idea about how this works out, and so I'm not going to wait for God to reveal to me what the plan might be. I'm not going to wait for God to bring somebody else along and confirm that the the plan is a good one. I'm just going to kind of move forward, and so then it moves into control. Pride moves into control. It moves into this idea that, okay, so now that I'm the one who knows best, knows better than anybody else, this is what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to step in and take control of the situation. And I'm going to move things forward. I'm going to get some stuff done. And so then that uh, moves to anger. Because when you think you belong in the position of control and you discover that things are not going the way that you think they should, you start to get very angry. And that's what happens to Moses. Moses sees himself as the deliverer. The one who is supposed to bring Israel out of Egypt. He's trying to set himself up as this person right now. But when he recognizes that things are not going as they should, he gets very angry. Very angry at something that the Israelites were very familiar with. This should not have been surprising to him. But he gets very angry and then it moves inside of him to commit murder. The progression of this idol, as you track it all the way from pride, all the way to murder, you can see it develop inside of Moses' heart. And so then uh, he was trying to liberate his people. He was trying to draw his people out of Egypt. He made the decision to stand with his people, but in order to do it, he failed his creator. He didn't value his creator's value for life. He didn't actually, he he makes a separation from even uh, the the other heroes that we've been given in the story so far, these these powerless women who show a value for life, a value for uh, fearing God above all, but Moses is just interested in taking control of the situation. And so then verse 13 says this, he went out and the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companions? So so Moses is now just being exposed to all of the Hebrew culture, all of the Israelite culture in Egypt. And as he's being exposed to this, he's seeing things for the first time. Now, the, the way the story sets this up for us, it's almost as if this is kind of like a thing that happens amongst the Hebrews. Like, people fight with each other. You know, this is a slave clash just trying to figure out how to like make it in society. They have their quarrels. They fight with each other. But Moses is going to step into this situation and demand an answer of these people. Moses is operating with a certain level of ignorance inside of him just for how his people work, like what his people do, how they function. And so he comes up and asks the question, you know, why do you do this? Because Moses thinks he knows better than his people do about how they ought to treat one another. And that is clear in the way that he sets himself up and so he comes into the situation. He's this liberator who's supposed to save them but he doesn't have an awareness of who they are and so verse 14 says this. He answered, the Hebrew answered, Moses, who do you think you are? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Nobody told me about it. When when do you think that you were gonna have this revealed? You have been sitting up there in your ivory tower all of these years and all of a sudden now you walk out and you expect that you're gonna be able to deliver our people? Why do you think that that is who you are? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Because you're pretty angry right now. I can see it in your eyes. I see that you're frustrated with me. So are you gonna do the same thing to me that you did to him? Oh, by the way, I saw it. So what kind of leader comes into a place and says, you know what, I know better about what to do with this place than all of you do. I know better about what these people need. I know better than your value for life. I know better than your customs. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm going to save you. And this Hebrew recognizes, you know what, nobody gave you that role. You took it for yourself. You stepped out of Egypt, you stepped out of Pharaoh's house and you came here. Who do you think you are? You do things like the Egyptians do. Why would we respect your leadership? You're gonna kill me like you're gonna kill him, like you killed him? So then, at the end of verse 14, it says, then, Moses was afraid because he knew he had been found out. He knew that somebody saw, somebody knew, whether they saw him murder the Egyptian, whether they found the body afterwards, somebody pieced it together, Moses killed the Egyptian. And so, uh, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, it says that he sought to kill Moses. So for someone who was trying to help his people, I want you to understand, like this is one of the worst things that Moses could have done. This actually had like took, uh, kind of was a, a gut reaction, didn't take into consideration sort of all of the situations that could have gone on, didn't take into the consideration the cost of what it was he actually did, because in killing an Egyptian, he opened the door for a whole political can of worms to just go crazy. Like He he created a situation now where Pharaoh, who was trying to oppress the Israelites, could look at an Israelite person in his house and look, he started to stage a coup. And now because he's trying to stage a coup, he can actually now be, uh, he has a, a, a justification by which he can now go and start killing Hebrew people. Like Moses now has created a situation that's very difficult for his people. He throws away his position with Egypt. He jeopardizes his people. He takes a life. He gets found out. And then he has this decision to murder inside of him, which is fueled by anger, which is fueled by his control, which is fueled by his pride. And all of this botches his chance to deliver Israel. Like he had the opportunity to step in and deliver Israel, but he was not interested in how God wanted to do it. He was not interested in what his people thought about how it should be done. He was only interested in taking control himself and seeing it happen. And so then Pharaoh has this really unique opportunity. Before we look at Pharaoh's opportunity, just, let's talk about Moses. Because you know, Moses, his motivations are very commendable. Like the things inside of him, that his, his uh, just disdain for injustice, uh, his, you know, his desire to see his people delivered, his commitment to the promise that God had given, like all of that is really good inside of him but his pride and his impulse to control, they destroyed every piece of potential that he had inside of him. And so in the process, he utterly dishonors God, does not at all uphold God's value for life. He left his people in the lurch. He failed to recognize the implications of what it was that he was actually doing it because he wanted to do it his way. And so then in Pharaoh, he has this opportunity now because he's had this Hebrew in his house for all these years. And now he has this chance to get this Hebrew out of his house. And so, uh, so in order to protect himself, in order to protect his people, Moses now has to make a decision. He can't stay in Egypt. If he stays in Egypt, it, it jeopardizes his life. It jeopardizes the life of his people. And so Moses decides to flee Egypt. That's his only solution that he has left. And so, so God actually like, pushes Moses out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness. And so and goes on in verse 15 and says, But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So, so uh, Moses was sought after by Pharaoh because he was supposed to be an Egyptian but abandoned his Egyptian identity and now Moses was rejected by this Hebrew because when he stand up, stood up to own his Hebrew identity he didn't, uh, the, that Hebrew thought that he wasn't really acting like one of God's people and so now Moses is in this situation where he is left without an identity. He doesn't have a country to associate with. And in the ancient Near East, like what country you're a part of, it's, that is the definition of your identity. That's like one of the grounding factors of your identity. And so he doesn't have a country to identify with. He doesn't have a people to identify with. He only has his failure to identify with. So I wanna, I wanna park here. I wanna talk about control a little bit. You know, if you have an idol of control, you may have the best of intentions inside of your heart, but control has a core belief that will jeopardize all of the best of your intentions. And so I want to talk about control's core belief. Control's core belief is this. I know best how to handle this and that and that. The idea is is that inside of me, I know better than the, uh, all the people around me. I know better than maybe God, although maybe I think like, what I think is what God thinks. Maybe that's what happens there. But, but the concept is, controls core belief, is I know best how to handle this situation, and, and that one as well, and that one. And this mindset, I want to let you know, actually, for what it's worth, this mindset, a person with this mindset can actually accomplish a fair amount of good. Especially if they're smart. Like, you get a smart person who has this idea in their head that they know best, and they start to take control of situations, they can actually get a lot of good done. But, but, you know what? I, I'll just confess to you, like, I've been guilty of this mindset myself. I, because I have thought, you know what? I know better. I'm going to do things the way that I would do that. So let's talk about all that it can do, this core belief. Number one, it gets things done. It does get things done. Now, it can get so much done, actually. But number two, it often doesn't count the cost. So you know what? Um, Moses, he doesn't recognize just God's value for life. He's willing to let another life be lost to take responsibility for taking that other life when it has not been given to him. He doesn't count the political implications of everything that's going on around him when he makes this move. And so so maybe you don't count the relational fallout when you step in to take control. Maybe you don't count the cost of the time or the energy or the money that it might take. Uh, You just decide, hey, I need to take control in this situation, and so it often doesn't count the cost. Number three, it waits for no one. You know, Moses, his mind is made up exactly how he's going to do this situation. He's not going to wait. He's not going to pray about it. He's not going to see if the Lord is going to show up and do something or tell him what he might do. Instead, he just takes the situation into his hands. He's not even interested in getting the counsel of his fellow Israelites. He just does it. Number four, it judges quickly and jumps to conclusions. Control judges quickly and jumps to conclusions. So, so uh, Moses, he knew. As soon as he walked out, without, without having the idea of just what life is like for his Hebrew people, he walked out and he knew it was wrong and so he knew that it was time to take things into his hands without actually examining what was happening with his people, without getting to know them, without sitting with them for some time and just trying to understand the kind of life that they were living, he judged and then jumped to conclusions about what was the best thing to do. It says things like, that's not the way I would do it. That's not getting done like I expect it to get done. Or if they would just do it my way, it would be taken care of. This is the kind of things that control says. Number five. It devalues the roles that others might play. Sorry, that should say that others, uh, the roles that others might play. So, so Moses, you know, he had resources in his people. We're actually gonna discover that later. Like, Israel has people called elders in it. Like, there are, there are some leaders of this people. Moses could go and, like, talk to them and get their insight, but instead he just takes things into his own hands. You know, control would do everything itself if it were possible to do everything. But it has, if it has to give something up, control always gives up control reluctantly. Like when somebody is trying to take control of something, it always gives up control reluctantly. And so I can look at this list and say, okay, yeah, I'm able to get things done when I take control, but I can look at the situations where I've taken control and I can go, you know what? In those times where I've had this mindset, I know best, I know how to handle this. You know what? I have judged quickly and I have jumped to conclusions about people. I have waited for no one. You know, sometimes I just need to, like, give people a chance to come along with me. But instead, I move ahead of them, and I start taking things into my own hands without bringing the right people into the conversation, devaluing the roles that others might play, failing to count the cost of relational fallout that can come when I do this just to get things done. Right? So this is how control works. So you might be looking at me saying this, and you might go, I might have a control idol. <laughs> and if you're hearing me say this, like I, I want to give you some hope this morning. Uh, so as we look at Moses' life, here is uh, a bit of hope. Uh, God continues to use him, so that's, so that's a good thing. Uh, we are going to be instructed by Moses' life, because too often, like uh, later on in the wilderness, God says, hit the rock one time, and Moses hits the rock two times, and because Moses is angry and decides, I'm gonna take things into my own hand, and he hits the rock two times, God says, you're not gonna see the promised land. So, so we're gonna be instructed by Moses' life, but as we uh, get instructed, I just wanna offer three suggestions. If you're going, okay, maybe I have a control idol. What if? Three suggestions, number one. I just invite you to confess and repent to people in your church regularly. Like if you notice, if you see rising up inside of your heart this idol of control, this is why scripture calls us to confess our sins to one another. So confess and repent regularly when you see this rising up inside of you. After that, I'd encourage you, get some accountability. Because you know what, this is one of the hardest things in the world to see when it's happening. But if you have somebody in the room who can say, you know, you asked me to watch out for this and, uh, and I just wanna let you know, it's starting to rise up. I see, I see it happening a little bit. That is such a gracious gift to you. Because that's gonna show you maybe some cost that you can't see coming, some, some things that you have to watch out for. And so I would say, number two, get and submit to some accountability in this area and then number 3 just lean on the grace of Jesus lean on the grace of Jesus because at the at the, the root of control is is pride and so you know what um, uh, that pride will say you know I I trust myself more than I trust uh, the Holy Spirit and my brothers and sisters. I trust myself more than I trust my, uh, or than trust God's way of doing things or thinking about things. Uh, And so that is sin that deserves the judgment of God and praise God that God has decided to pour out that judgment on Jesus. That Jesus has actually been willing to take that for our behalf so that we could be forgiven. So, so if you want a response, you're going, what if I have an idol of control, confess and repent, get some accountability for it, and then lean on the grace of Jesus. So I just want to empathize with you for a second. If you do this, I, I, if you have an idol of control in you, you probably have learned it because you needed to survive. And the only way that you could survive is you had to take control of your situation. This is how you knew how to operate in your world. And so like, uh, this is not at all close to a situation where I was literally fighting for my life, but in college projects, where I have to work with a team of people and none of those people wanna do their job, the way I got, the grade that I got was because I took control of the situation. Right? that's just what i so so it's it's the sort of thing that made me get done the things that needed to get done right this is how i learned to survive and and some people in this room learn to take control to literally figure out how to survive right and i understand that but what was once used for survival if it becomes a pattern in our souls can become toxic to our souls So just watch out for that. Okay, so then uh, verse 15 finishes up and it says this. It says, and he sat down by a well. So you know what? Moses' control problem, it has created a mess for him. It has jeopardized everything. He has failed. And uh, maybe you are looking at a situation in your life. Maybe it's connected to your control problem. Maybe not. But you recognize failure in your life. You know what the best part about this is? The best part about this whole story is it drives him into the wilderness. And if you look at the Old Testament, the pattern of being driven into the wilderness is that it is a place where people meet God. In the wilderness is the place where people meet God. I, uh, actually, there's a guy with a quote who I really appreciate. This is one of my favorite quotes. It says, when you reach the end of your rope, God is there. Yeah. The end of your rope is God's address, and that's by Dallas Willard, that, that when we recognize we've blown it, we've lost our opportunity, we've taken control too many times, and it has created a difficult situation for us, when we understand that, you know what, that's a good place to be, it's a good place, and it doesn't feel good. (laughs) It doesn't feel like this is how it's supposed to be, but this is a really good place to be because this is a place where God works humility into our souls so that we can know God actually can work in this. God is at work. We're not the ones who work. God is. So the end of your rope is a really good place to be, So uh, another way to say it, and this is the way that we're articulating it this morning, failure does not define you, God does. Failure doesn't define you, God does. We're actually gonna see Moses encounter God in a powerful way before he gets to the burning bush. We're not even at the burning bush here. We're gonna see uh, God show up in Moses' life in a significant way. So verse 16 goes on and says this. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to uh, water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So I want you to see, just because of Moses' failure, it doesn't change those really good motivations inside of him. He's still there standing up for the oppressed. He sees what's happening to these women as they're out watering their flocks. He sees these shepherds come up against them. And we see his strength sort of rise up, his courage to stand against these people. And so he, he shows himself even as a deliverer when it says he saved them. That is the same word that's going to be used when, God, like when uh, God uses Moses to save his people out of Egypt. He stood up and he saved them. So verse 18, when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock, just so you know, uh, for a man to water the flock, that is not, like, men don't do that. So he is going beyond his social boundaries to serve these women. And their father is like, girls, what are you doing? You got to go get him. <laughs> well, you don't leave him out there. Bring him in. He needs to be here in this house. He belongs to one of you. And so, so he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him. Let him eat bread. Come enjoy our house. I need this man in my family. He is a man of good character and I want you to see here God is showing his favor to Moses how do we know God's showing his favor to Moses every time in scripture that somebody is given a family especially here at the beginning of uh, the Pentateuch at the beginning of the Torah every time we see somebody given a family it is a sign of God's blessing on that person so God's showing his favor to Moses He has a place to stay, he has food, he has a home, he has people. And then in verse 21, we see he's given a family. It says, and Moses was content to dwell with a man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So you know what, Moses, he knows his failures have uh, taken his past identity as an Egyptian away from him. They've taken his past identity as an Israelite away from him. But then he leaves and he finds a new people. It's crazy that God gives him a people to identify with. He finds a new home, a place to live. He could have been driven out into the desert with no place to live, but now he has a place. And then, interesting, he names his son Gershom. Gershom is not an Israelite name. It doesn't exist in the people of Israel. It's just an Arabian name. Which means that Moses, in his head, even as he's receiving these blessings from God, he thinks the gig is up. He thinks he has failed God beyond what can be recovered. He's ruined every shot at delivering God's people or even just being a part of God's people again. So Moses actually, he believes that his failures have disqualified him from whatever good he might have done. But the good news this morning is that failure doesn't define you. God does. So verse 23 goes on, and and, and it tells us a bit more of the story, because this is where we really start to see God show up in the story. Verse 23 says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue, for slavery, came up to God. So you know what? God is in control of this whole thing, and he has been the whole time. And his purposes are always at play, even though, like, we can't see exactly how he's working or what he might do. The reality is he, is he always knows what he is doing. And you know what? God had a timeline for this thing in his head the entire time. Like, God knew what he was going to do. He, he kind of knew the series of events that had to be at play. Moses kind of jumped the gun on the whole thing, but God knew what he was doing. And so God was waiting for two things, what what seems apparent in this passage. God was waiting for, number one, his people to get desperate. He was waiting for his people to come to the end of themselves, yet prayers might have been rising up a little bit, but it had to get very intense. Uh, His people needed to know that there was no other hope, that this world actually is very hopeless, that we need somebody who can bring hope to us. And so the people start crying out and saying, we've got nothing. We are at the end of our rope. So he needed his people to get desperate and he needed the stubborn king to die so a more stubborn king could take his place. Verse 24 goes on and says, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew every single verb in this passage. God heard them, God remembered them, God saw them, God knew them. It speaks of the emotion that is like sort of welling up. It's trying to communicate God's emotion for his people, the way that he is moved when they cry out in the middle of their desperation. So they might be inclined to think that they're forgotten, but this is proving to us God never forgets. So you know what, Moses may have failed, and Moses may have thought he's done with God and God's people, God's people are done with him, God's done with him, but, but you know what, God was still at work. They may feel like God has forgotten them, but the picture that we get is a very different picture. We get a picture of a God who is moved by the pain of his people. You know what, we don't always know what his purposes are. But this passage, it's cluing us into the fact that that even though they may think that God has forgotten them, you know what, God is waiting for the right opportunities to show up in powerful ways. You know what, God, he would actually redefine Israel. He was gonna come and he was gonna save them out of Egypt. And and they might have been tempted to see themselves as forgotten, but he's actually gonna change their definition of themselves to people who are saved. The people who are drawn out of this place that oppress them. Okay, so what? So what? Number one, I want to ask you the question, who is your story about? So if your story is about you, it's going to be really hard to outrun your failure. Because your failure constantly proves to you your own ability to fall short of the things that uh, might be coming for you, of the things that you try to do. And so if your story is about you, you've got nothing to redefine you except you. But the good news for us this morning is that if your story is about God, good news, God restores so God is in the restoration business. He, this is what he does. He brings dust from the ashes. He uh, restores the years that the locusts have eaten. These are the kinds of things that he does. And so, you know what? If you've not trusted Christ, then you know what? Right now, your story is about you. But the amazing thing about Jesus is that he comes in and he says, listen, I can make your story about God. And when he makes your story about God, when we trust Christ, we make a decision for our lives to tell a story about God, and he now becomes the definer of our life. So so Saul could have been defined as a murderer of God's people, and in fact, that's how many people looked at Saul, that's how many people defined him, but then he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus, the Lord stopped him, the Lord showed up and said, hey, guess what, now your story is not about you anymore, it's about me. And I'm going to redefine you to to, to tell a different story. And so he becomes Paul. And and now Paul is known universally the world over, not as a murderer of God's people, but as a proclaimer of the gospel who ensured the spread of the gospel to the entire known world at that time. So God, he is in the restoration business. Number two, uh, your failures never outplay God's hand. So this is not permission to go and just see what failures you can find, but it is to state that, that in those times of failure, in those times where you think you have fallen short of God, listen, God's bigger than our failures. And, and he knows what he's doing. You know, he has, he has things that he's working out, things, and he is gracious enough to actually let those failures like make you into the person that he desires to make you. So your failures never outplay God's hand. And so number three, this is an encouragement. Let your failures create humility. You know what? Failure will incline you to fight to prove yourself. You know what? When you fail, you, you will think, okay, I need, to, I need to fix this. I need to make it right. I need to uh, kind of cut corners and figure out how to, uh, to take control. But instead, if we let our failures reveal to us that we are not God, and we just simply let God be God and trust him, we simply say that our story is not about us, it's about him. We carry with us an attitude of humility, an attitude of saying, you know what, maybe I don't know best. Maybe, maybe somebody else knows something that I don't, or maybe else, somebody else has insight, or maybe the Lord, I just need to wait for the Lord to show up Show me what he wants to do in this situation. You know what? You let your failures create humility in your situations. And and it's okay to admit, I I don't know what to do because you know what? I know that God knows what to do. He's the one who provides a way. He provides Jesus. He loves you. And so let your failures create humility. Let your failures show you that you make a really crappy God. And let God be God. So, uh, so I wanna leave you with this question this morning. Is there a piece of your life that you would like God to forget about but he wants to redeem? Is there a piece of your life that you've been running from that you've been wishing you didn't have to acknowledge that makes you feel often when your mind goes back to it feel like a failure that defines you you know what? If you know God, God can define you. That failure doesn't have to define you. So how? I start asking the Lord, okay, that thing, whatever that thing is, how do you want to start using that? How do you want to redeem that, that piece of my past? We're going to transition now into a time of communion. You know what? Moses, he was, he was given to us. He thought he was the deliverer of Israel, And, and as we're going to see, he does actually become the deliverer of Israel. But, but Moses falls desperately short of what a deliverer is supposed to be. And you know what? Every single leader that comes after Moses falls desperately short of what a leader of God's people is supposed to be. In fact, these leaders, they can only give us a small glimpse of the king that God would actually send one day to truly deliver his people. You know what? God would use those leaders, flawed as they may be, to move history towards Jesus. Because none of those leaders could address the core problem that exists in humanity besides Jesus. And so God would send his son And that son would come to earth and he would be sinless, he would be perfect and he would go to a cross and he would take on himself the full weight of all of our sins so that we might be forgiven. You know, so that Moses actually could have the chance to be forgiven. Moses was advancing history towards Jesus, but, but Moses' right standing and ability to stand rightly before God only become, comes because of what Jesus did. And the same is true of David, and the same is true of all of the leaders throughout history, and the same is true of Paul, and the same is true of me, and the same is true of all of you, that the only reason we get to stand before God is not because we have in any way proved ourselves to God, but because Jesus has stood on our behalf in our place and died for our sin so that we could be forgiven. That's the kind of leader that he is. And so we're gonna be looking at Moses and we might wanna think, hey, Moses is a great hero of the Bible. Yeah, go Moses. And no, like actually every step of the way, we see that Moses is an incredibly flawed leader. He takes control of things when he shouldn't take control of things. He, uh, he steps on God's toes every step of the way. He gets angry with his people all the time. We see a broken person in Moses, but the good news this morning is that we have a leader who did indeed come and he died in our place for our sins that we might be forgiven. So in a moment, um, the ushers, they're gonna pass out bread and juice for us. We are gonna celebrate communion. And the bread represents Jesus' broken body. The juice represents Jesus' shed blood for our sakes. And the reason we take communion together as a body is because we believe, uh, as Christians, what we do is we proclaim the death of Jesus. Because the death of Jesus is the only means by which we can earn any favor before God. And so if you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, your identity is not based in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then, then uh, we ask that you simply let those plates pass you by because we wouldn't want you to make a proclamation that you can't make. But if you are a Christian here this morning, if, if Jesus is the core of your identity, then we invite you to celebrate in this meal with us. Celebrate the fact that, gosh, we didn't have any hope, but Jesus provided hope for us. We're gonna take a moment of silence and um, in that moment of silence, I'd invite you reflect on your failures with God. Maybe it's a failure you had this week. Maybe it's that big failure that you can't seem to get past in your life and reflect on the amazing truth that there is no failure too big that the blood of Jesus cannot cover it. Celebrate this in your heart as we prepare our hearts for communion. Would you be silent with me, please? Jesus, as I reflect on my own tendency to take control of things. And I don't know if, if anybody else shares in that problem, but, but Lord, I see even the failures that that has created in my own life. The, the loss of relationships, the devaluing of other people. Lord, I'm so thankful that those failures do not define me. Lord, I'm so thankful that that all my future failures, they they don't define me. I'm so thankful that the only thing that defines me before you is the fact that I am covered in Jesus' blood. Lord, I pray for the hearts in this room that you would give us an amazing sense of gratefulness and hope and trusting you to define and write our stories. Lord, that you would help us to see just what it is that Jesus has forgiven us for. And you would help us to lean into it and trust it. Lord, as that pushes that idol of control out of our hearts. Lord, we trust you for these things, and we ask that you would help us to appreciate them more and more, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the plates are passed, um, we are doing things a little bit different for communion today. So uh, the juice...